Hi, everyone. It's autumn, a time for harvest festivals and family reunions. And if you're planning on getting together with your family, you should protect yourself and them by getting an updated COVID vaccine. If you are 50 or older, you are at even greater risk for hospitalization and death, especially if you have a chronic disease. So get an updated vaccine now. If you need more information, talk to your doctor. Find updated COVID vaccines at vaccines.gov. We can do this. Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dear Asian Americans. I am your host, Jerry Wan. I am here with our producer, Patrick Armstrong, and really excited to introduce you to our latest episode, episode 169, where we get a chance to talk to Dr. Calvin Sun. Uh, many of you know him on Instagram as at Monsoon Diaries, and he is an emergency room physician in New York City. And he has built uh, initially as a personal blog and now as a full-fledged uh, travel and media company uh, called Monsoon Diaries, uh, where he travels the world and he's visited over 190 countries. And today, if you're listening to our episode on 927, he has got a, uh, his first book out, also called The Monsoon Diaries. And so we're going to talk to him about his life, how he only went to medical school based on a bet, how he has just had an interesting uh, a lot of serendipity in his life that's led him to where he is now and um, really given us a, an interesting look at what you can do and what you can perceive or what is, or I guess, what you can do versus what you perceive that you can do as an Asian American person in this country. Uh, Patrick, what did you like about Dr. Sun's episode? I think what I really liked about it, like you said, the serendipity, uh, the serendipitousness of his journey, the things that happened that led him from one point to another point in the reasonings behind that decision making I thought was really really fascinating and he also said something that really stuck with me in regards to what I think kickstarted the travel part of his professional career when he said that I realized I'd rather be poorer and stay a man of my word rather than start a habit of flaking on the promises I make to myself and other people and when I heard him say that it really I don't know it really resonated with me because I think that for me I've known in my journey to find myself not necessarily flaking, but being more inclined to run when the, when, when the going gets tough, I should say. And I think as I've gone through this personal journey, I found myself really wanting to make sure I stay true to my word. And um, if I say I'm going to do something, follow it through to the end, regardless of the outcome. And so to hear him kind of reiterate that uh, was really powerful. And I think I'm very excited for people to hear how he comes about making decisions like these. Yeah, you know, the, the takeaway for me, um, as, as somebody who didn't do so great in college and sort of found my way in, in a fortuitous late stage way of, uh, you know, getting to grad school and obviously doing this uh, as a living, speaking and doing podcasting um, after having gone to uh, business school, I, I find his story really relatable. Um, I think when we look at in the present moment, Somebody like Calvin, who is an ER physician, and he's got this platform, and he's traveled to so many things, and under and without understanding the context of how the story came to be, I think you perceive it in, in in a very specific way, right? One of privilege, one of access, one of you know somebody who has checked all the boxes in his life and does so much. But when you understand his story and the the tribulations that he's been through, the trials that he's been through, the left turns, the U turns, the you know, the things that in his personal life with his family and all these things. And and I think, of course, he, he tells a story in hindsight with, you know, with a little bit more clarity and perspective and maybe a little bit less of the pain. Um, it helps us realize that, one, we actually don't know 
anything about how life is going to turn out. And two, that we are not the sum of our experiences or our past, because he has proven to us through his story that, you know, you can, uh, you know, do things poorly and still, you know, go to med school or make a decision overnight after a night of drinking to book a plane ticket and have miraculous things happen and end up with this great platform and, and a voice that helps, you know, inspire so many of us. And so encourage you as you're listening to this, if you are moved by Calvin's story, uh, do two things for us. One, follow him on Instagram. It's at Monsoon Diaries. And then two, hop over to wherever you buy your books and buy his book and, and share it. Of course, here on the Asian Americans, one of the things that we feel extremely passionate about is encouraging Asian Americans to share their stories and a book form and letting publishers and retailers know that Asian American books are worth carrying, are worth uh, backing, especially uh, for him, uh, having written his book with Harper, one of the big publishers, it is really important that we show support, particularly at the early stages. And so uh, if you have the means, please do so. If you don't or you uh, prefer to borrow books from the library, make sure that your library is carrying this book and let's make sure that we can get his book out to the world. And so thanks to Patrick for producing and editing this episode. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Calvin Sun. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Dears and Americans, uh, and hope you are continuing to uh, stay safe and healthy. We're in the midst of talking about vaccines. Um, big shout out again to vaccines.gov and the uh, Health and Human Services for their support of these series of episodes. And kind of cool that we we didn't plan for this. Uh, we actually planned for this uh, with timing of his uh, book release, um, but we get to talk sort of about COVID and how that's impacted our lives. And um, how we want to use that to uh, talk about community and also living our own best lives. And many of you follow our guests today on Instagram at Monsoon Diaries. Uh, my pleasure and my real honor to welcome Dr. Calvin Sun to Dears Americans. Hi, Calvin. Thanks, Jerry, for having me. The honor is all mine. It's a pleasure to be here. How are you, man? I, I, you know, I think we have stopped talking about the impact of the pandemic on our healthcare friends because the news cycles have come and gone. Um, but I uh, want to check in on you and how you're doing and, and how work is, your, your day job. We'll talk about the other jobs in a little bit, but your, your day job as emergency room physician. Um, how have you handled the last couple of years and, and how are you doing now? It's brutal to consider how much has changed in how I see this profession and how it started, how I thought it was going. and how it is now. And that's pretty much the theme of a lot of what I do in life, that something that you have a certain perspective of, whether it's a discrete event or an identity or just a feeling of something, changes over time if you let it. And especially when revisiting on how I feel about being a doctor now uh, compared to what it was like before the pandemic. I mean, in the breadth of it, it's complete night a nightmare an unforgiving nightmare how do you describe something so indescribable and then realize that despite all that you're here on a podcast talking about it you're fine i mean it feels <laughs> fine we're we're moving on the world has moved on it's very surreal to see how like like these things just happen in such succession so quickly it, it is. And, you know, um, we'll get to talking about sort of how you ended up leveraging your already growing uh, platform to actually bring light and build community, not just in its originally intended 
format as a place for your, your travel um, and your travel businesses, but really for people to find community solace information. Um, because in, I think at least from my perspective, uh, you did a wonderful job of providing culturally competent, resonant, and relevant information about the pandemic and how we as the Asian American community could, should um, react to it and and just sort of giving us, um, you know, a, I don't know, a comfortable place to to convene, um, even if it was in the comment section. And before we get to talking about your uh, your, your life story of, of being a New York City kid through and through, uh, tell us about your book. Uh, it's titled, it's the same title as your Instagram account and your brand and your company, Monsoon Diaries. Uh, if you're listening to this on the day that the podcast dropped, the book is out today. And so um, go anywhere to buy the book if you're in New York City. Uh, go to our friends at UME in Chinatown, preferably not Amazon, but if you must, Amazon's good too, helps the ratings. But um, tell us about your book that comes out today. It is my love letter to gratitude of gratitude. And it's partly even starting with the title. I didn't choose the title. The publisher <laughs> wanted to name it after my blog and social media accounts, which the title in itself had a, had a weird origin story. And I think my first reaction was like, are you sure? And I think that's my attitude to this whole bar book is, are you sure you want to do this? I was approached two years ago by a literary agent and then another one, uh, totally random, about publishing what I have already written, not only just during the pandemic, but the past 17 years. And I don't want this book to be seen as a COVID book. We are all mm. sick of it. We want to move on from it. And, the, you know, it's, we, it's, we don't want to relive trauma. We don't have to. The book is really using COVID as a background vehicle to tell an overarching story about how one derives resilience from something they already have rather than trying to acquire it externally. When we face something so unknown and so intimidating, where do we rely on the repertoire of experience uh, to channel the strength to face those things. And a lot of us feel like it's something that we need to discover and something that's outside of us. Well, the real work should be done within the journey within to see that the answer is already underneath your nose. You already have everything. And you know, part of the, the experience of going through something like COVID was just an example of when we were facing something that was so intimidating and unknown. What already... Some, it's something that has happened in our lives. Can we channel to face something that we didn't know had an end date? And that ended up translating to the things I wrote about when my father died when I was a uh, teenager, when I was 19, that summer where he died of a sudden unexpected heart attack and my mom got diagnosed with Parkinson's. And then the choice after the fact to actively accept rather than passively resign one to the notion that life is inherently chaotic. There's always going to be unknowns. And I can't control for that, but at least I can control how I approach those things, which is running towards the fire and embracing uncomfortable, becoming comfortable with discomfort. And that went up to all of the writings I did during my travels and the adventures I had uh, done regularly during medical school, both of which I didn't expect after losing best to myself. And, you know, COVID happened around and that happened to be the adventure I didn't sign up for <laughs> and how that all connected together in allowing the reader, hopefully, to channel their own experiences and realize, oh, I already have what it takes. I can live the life I've always wanted to. And just, you know, despite a, a loss, a trauma, or a pandemic, 
which is I use because it's something that we all experienced. Not everyone has lost a loved one like a father so suddenly. Not everyone has been on travels or adventures, but everyone knows what it likes to go through a pandemic. And using that as a way to relate to and see, apply to yourself and say, I don't have to have a discrete event that I feel I can't change define me anymore or even ignore, but rather use it as an opportunity to reframe my life and see it in a different way with more clarity and purpose and live with more goals to live the best life you can in the moment. I mean, you know, what I think is really amazing about your story thus far is how you've tackled stereotypes and expectations more, I guess, rather in, in terms of what we're supposed to be, right? And then I say we as, you know, the stereotypical East Asian and even particularly men of what we are expected to uh, study and to be. And you have done both in a sense that you have done what was expected of you, or at least was expected by your your family to pursue as a professional career. And yet, even at an early age, you were involved in leadership roles and community building through the work that you did in college with ICASU, which is the East Coast Asian Student Union Organizations, and, and bringing people together. And then this whole travel thing, which is amazing. Over 10 years, you've you know visited over 190 countries um, and then have built a great business around that. And doing, I don't even want to say both because it limits ourselves to even two things, but doing a lot more than what we have even internalized is possible or feasible is even for somebody with a profession in in our community. And so would really love to sort of understand how this all came about. Um, How did the Sun family become American? uh, When, where, and then how? And, And tell us about the earlier years of your life that really impacted the way you saw yourself in America. Yeah, it's a whole journey of reclaiming narratives and understanding where is it the the question, the the question of where is it coming from you or is it coming from an external influence, society, your guardians, your caretakers, your parents, or even what it means to be Asian American, whatever that the label feels that that pressure to define you. And what I truly believe is after everything I experienced was it's a constant practice of revisiting the question, am I reclaiming my narrative and not letting any or minimizing the influences? Because it's not, you can never be perfect. It's, we live in a society, we have a social contract, but the minimizing the influence of external forces, hijacking that narrative. Mm-hmm. And we, we come out of the womb and it's an, a sandbox. It's an open space. We can do whatever we want. And then over time, as our parents and guardians, with the best of intentions, try to keep us safe, they start creating what they think is right for you. And to no fault of their own, we should be grateful to them for putting a roof over our heads for many of us, giving us an education. But at some point, there's a transition, an inflection point where we are like, is this what they want or is this what I want? And that's when you grapple with the identity crises. And it's a lot more complicated than you and your parents or you and your guardians. It's the whole label of how the society perceives you, whatever you live in. And that's the difference, the, the, what makes you different from this quote unquote status quo. And that's for us, an Asian American, or AAPI, is that the society perceives you different and they've chosen that for you. And you and your response to that is always a force and counterforce 
create an identity to keep yourself safe because all you know is about keeping yourself safe from your parents. And then we start creating all these contraptions in order to keep this bubble intact when they're just bubbles. It may pop at any time and they don't care what you do and what contraptions you make to keep make yourself feel safe. And that's the acceptance of that inherent chaos that we live in. So for the Sun family, my parents wanted me to become a doctor. And I said, sure, because I didn't know any better. But at some point, the inflection point, that, that inflection point, I was like, I'm not happy. And I don't know why. I'm doing it and I'm grateful to have a structure and have a plan. It's been made out for me. I don't have to think as hard. But something was missing and I couldn't put a finger to it. We, we, I wasn't even taught in an emotional language, let alone from Asian American parents, to, to create a sense of self-determination or reclamation by narrative. And then it was not until my dad died from a sudden heart attack when I was 19 and my mom got Parkinson's around that summer where I decided not to become a doctor. And I thought that was my narrative. Mm. And the irony is then I became a doctor, but the long story short is I did it on my own means through my own story and my own narrative that I can say I can fully 100% own rather than feeling like I did it for someone else. What was that change for you in owning your own story or owning your own decision to pursue medicine? Because um, you, you studied bio things in, in undergrad while doing a whole lot of you know, great activities, but how did you come to re-own that? And what did you want to do in that brief moment where you decided not to be a doctor? The double life of living one part, what your parents want you to be to keep yourself safe and make them happy because you feel like you owe them everything. And then the other life, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, Bruce Banner and the Hulk, you know, those it's somehow always a doctor that it's like the dichotomy of, you know, your double life where you, there's a thing inside you to feel like you don't owe your parents anything because you have your own life to live. And being, especially being Asian American, being raised in this, 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 uh, the United States is, you know, individualism, live for yourself, determine, you know, your own path. And that's a diametrically opposed concepts uh, for many of us. But we were somehow still juggling that. And that's a lot for a young kid to go through. And I was hiding that part of my life from them because it, it was what I thought was making me happy. Um, but I also wanted to make them happy. And that's why for the first half of my undergrad years, I was doing all the bio stuff because that's what my dad wanted. And that was the way that he can let go and let me be and do my own life, which was the non-bio stuff that he didn't know about. And it wasn't until he suddenly died that summer, it was the summer between my sophomore and junior year, like literally in between that the rest of my college years, I decided to not become a doctor. My grades plummeted. And, you know, the irony is like, you know, when you get, to, if you're a bad student, to get into medical school, you're supposed to even if you don't do well in the beginning, you're supposed to show an upward trajectory of your grades. I was the complete opposite. I was doing okay and then complete disaster. And I was okay with that because I'd rather be a student leader on campus and that was making me happy. And I want to graduate as such rather than having a title to my name of being valedictorian or summa cum laude. I didn't really, that wasn't me. That's what I thought. And then for the next two years, I became a bartender. I did odd jobs here and there. I still dabbled in the thought of doing medicine, but I always convinced myself, no, that's what your dad wanted. And I was very actually happy with that perspective. And I thought that was going to be mm -hmm. permanent. And it wasn't until I lost a bet that led me to a trip in Egypt 36 hours later, then I realized I know, I know nothing. 
uh, it got me to a place where I said, Why, what if that my deciding not to become a doctor is rebelling against my dad? And if that's the case, I'm doing something or not doing something because of someone else. That I don't want to be a doctor because everyone expects an Asian American to become a doctor. Then the status quo that puts that pressure to not become a doctor still wins. They still own you. They still have hijacked your narrative. <laughs> How do I know? What if I'm actually meant to become a doctor, but I've let the status quo and the, the stereotypes and my parents tell me that I, sh you know, compel me that I shouldn't because they told me to be. And I was going back and forth a lot. And it's like the poison cup scene in The Princess Bride. You don't know which one is the right one. They're both poisoned, might as well. But stasis is never really the answer. And I sat with that feeling. And eventually, I lost another bet that led me to apply to medical school. And then somehow, I was hoping to check that box off and get rejected everywhere with my really bad grades. I didn't take a post back. I didn't try to redo my grades or retake the entrance exam or MCATs. I just applied as if, checked that box off. I was hoping to get rejected everywhere and have my Oprah story and say, I failed everything and become a travel blogger. And then that <laughs> earnestness, the candidness actually ended up getting me into one school. They're like, we like you. You're so different. And I knew that was an opportunity I couldn't give up. And I know most people would kill for that opportunity. Now I was so grateful to her, but I was shocked. And so I just kept doing it uh, because I, you know, I'd rather be a man of my word and capitalize on a very profound opportunity rather than go back on my promises and hit a lot of walls on the way there. But I didn't realize I wanted to be a doctor until the third year in my residency, like seven years later. And I was like, oh, thank God. But it made sense when I look back and connect the dots. It never made sense in the moment trying to connect the dots looking forward. Holy moly, man. Well, number one, none, none of it makes sense when you're in the moment. Um, it, it's only in, in, in hindsight with some of the time-healed wounds that have dissipated where we're able to either see things clearly or as human beings do, justify the whole story by saying, hey, now, now it makes sense. Um, there are so many different nuggets that you dropped that, that I want to go deeply into. But before we do that, tell us about, you, you, you did a lot of outside of the box things in college, whether it was being a part of a reality TV show or, or getting really involved in you know student government, which from a uh, a stereotype perspective or things that people do not really expect people who look like me and you to do. I I think we're similar in some ways. One, uh, my college grades started high and then I just figured I just needed to graduate. So I didn't really care about grades, which then slapped me in the face when it was time to apply to business school. And uh, like you, I got into one school and yes, uh, you know, you yeah, that's all you need, right? Um, and had to explain like why it looks the opposite <laughs> of the well, at least he started like crap freshman year. It must have been hard, and he finished on a high note. That was not also my case, but I want to um, high five you from afar. <laughs> hey, all, all it takes is one. But tell tell me about how you wanted to do that, and you know, obviously now again, when we look at what you're doing now, what you have done now, it makes all the sense in the world, right? But you know, when you're going to an academic institution like Columbia, where uh, and, and you're studying biochemistry of all things, the things that were priority to you from a, hey, this is what I want to make of my collegiate experience, you know, and I don't want to say that like Asian Americans don't get involved in student government, but broadly speaking, we do not as much as our peers do because we sort of have this like, you know, narrow focus of get to the next level. What prompted those things in your life that helped you build community, helped you to think outside the box and eventually end you, you know, like you said, and then I want to learn more about the silly bet that ended you up in Egypt and 
you started the travel blog Monsoon Diaries during college, right around that very uh, you know important time that you said. Um, but to tell us about sort of what you wanted to accomplish in college outside of just becoming a doctor or the next thing that helped you become or helped you build these building blocks that, again, in the moment may have not been so clear. But in hindsight, all of this makes total sense now. Yeah, the, the Monsoon Diaries, I started at a medical school uh, or over the summer right before medical school because I had no idea w- how to make sense of everything that has gotten me to that point. And uh, it was just a, a, a place where I can just write of my thoughts during my travels and see if it could represent the way I live my life. Because the way I plan my trips and have continued to do so, even as it has grown, is this ad hoc throw things at the wall and see what sticks. And going back to my college years, I wanted to, it was derived from the same attitude. There was a little bit of a rebellion. I mean, I'm not going to deny that I will have to own this little spark of rebellion in relation to whether I was born with it or is relation to my father. That's a lot of things to unpackage right now that, you know, I, I actually right now, this moment, my perspective is I'm grateful for that spark of rebellion because it got me to with that energy to try many different things because i've resolved even before my father died that i knew nothing that i was becoming and i didn't couldn't put a word to it at the time but now looking back i was acting on this feeling that oh maybe i've been living my parents life this whole time and the life that society expects an asian american to live And that doesn't feel quite right. And if that's the case, then how would they know? Maybe I know better. Maybe I should try to touch the burner a little bit and see if it's actually hot, as they say. Don't jump in the water. Don't touch the burner. And then you realize that maybe they're wrong. And trying different things that didn't quite match who I was, like student government or student leadership positions or at the time, I was doing dancing and signing up for the bartending classes. Uh, that, that was also the best paying job on campus. That was also, oh, numerical wise, that was numbers wise, that was a good idea. And trying those things and hiding that from my parents and seeing how it made me feel, that was the only way I could judge it. Now, student government, I came with this energy of being excited to get away from my parents because you know, the, even though Columbia was only like a 20 minute cab ride away from where I grew up in New York. I still stayed on campus and lived in the dorms. And my parents were not happy about you know how much money they could have saved, but I chose not to because I needed to be close to the classrooms, I told them. But coming with the energy, that excitement, got me to be okay with the idea of running for student government. Uh, but I realized it was the stereotype that they needed a webmaster. And I had a few websites, like a Star Wars website I was running at the time. So there's that stereotype. I got in through without knowing that's what the party I was running uh, wanted to do for me. But I'm also an aware, self, self-aware Asian American that when he assigned me webmaster, the seeds had been planted for us to run against him the next election cycle, which we did. And we won by like 11 votes. And that's when I was like, I, get your foot in the door, but subvert it from within. I mean, that's how I feel about activism. You know, find any avenues it takes to create that change. And even if it means to be the imperial architect of the Death Star, but planning that weakness, Star Wars Rogue One, you know, so that no one else knows, so that you can give the Rebel Alliance a chance. Like, if my avenue was to get in the foot of the door through whatever means, 
I still have the personal agency to change it from within and redefine and reclaim my narrative. Even what has already happened has happened. I can't change that. And you know, that's, that's how I felt about being an Asian American. Growing up, I couldn't control the fact that I was born Asian American and it was perceived as such. And a lot of the times I felt that the right emotion was to be ashamed, to keep your head low, to not speak out, to, you know, just do the work and, you know, that you're always going to be the other and you should always want to be more status quo, more white. And it's underlying and it grows and it's, and, it, and you, you people we hear become successful. Sometimes we hear the narrative, I succeeded despite growing up Asian American. But I wanted to change that perspective. I wanted to say, how can I still succeed? The what of it is the same, the success, whatever you define that as. How do I succeed because I'm Asian American? That I am now in these avenues, no matter what it was, but I can reclaim it, redefine it, and become the leader that I actually want to be rather than the webmaster they saw me as. And now that I'm in it, I ran and then became vice president of the class. And I was very happy doing that. And I realized that I had you know, some interest in being a student leader. And that's what I continued forth in medical school. Fun fact, I too was a student government president in graduate school. Um, I ran unopposed, but I like to think that People didn't want to run. You intimidated me. everyone. No, the part of the campaigning <laughs> is the pre-campaigning. Good job. Dibs, right? And uh, people, for, for what it's worth. But, you know, it, it's one of those things where I, I think we do it for our own leadership advancement. And, you know, perhaps part of our own ego is a little bit part of it. Or the, we know the opportunities that can, that can open, you know, with access to administration and things like that. Um, what were some of the things that you learned through both of those experiences, you know, vice president at Columbia and then president at SUNY Downstate Medical School? about what it meant for other people to see you in that role and, and, and the belief that being present and not just representation simply, but the proper type of representation that broke the stereotype and said, hey, here's an Asian American person that is the president of our, our student government. And that means that this is a place where I can see myself thrive. Because when I did it, there were moments that I still vividly remember, particularly during you know recruiting season when prospective students came to visit. And we would be in these, you know, info sessions and trying to sell kids on coming to, to, to uh, Michigan, where at the end, it's like, hey, man, I just want you to know it's really important for me that you are in that position and that every other school that I go to, I don't see that. And I just want to say thank you. And, and that's mm -hmm. not the reason why we do it. But for me, again, in hindsight, that the power that we had by stepping up went far beyond what we thought were the benefits that we could reap from it. Were there, were there moments like that for you or were there some things that you learned from those experiences that translated into helping you build your travel business or your speaking business in, in a different way? It's so funny because I always say this quote by Helen Zia when I give keynotes or public speeches for especially Asian American communities, it's time to stop being so fucking polite. And we say this. But do we really feel it? Do we really own it? And it's kind of ironic because I say it and I think I believe in it, but it's still there's this thing that's holding me back that makes me want to be polite. And I literally had a call with somebody about my book coming out and she had said like, just letting you know, you are being so polite. You think you're being aggressive and you know trying to promote yourself with this book because your publisher is asking to, but I honestly think as from a third person just talking to you for the first time, you're being very polite. And as Asian Americans, she had essentially said, we need to learn how to take up space. 
and be more forthcoming about taking a space that so many other people have hijacked away from us to try to redefine for us. And we've been more than too happy to let them do that because it's convenient, it's comfortable. We think they're doing all the work when it's rather they're doing the work to define us. And you know, some of us need to be comfortable with being impolite to take up that space, even if we don't know that we're doing it. And I think for folks like you and me in college, there was this burgeoning desire that, you know, this, we're not happy with the status quo. That's why we became student leaders. I, I hope that's why. Not because you, not to pad your resume or to look good for anything else. Like I went because I was invited by a, a party to wanted to run. Obviously, they wanted the diversity platform. And I said, sure. But I also wanted to go in and say, well, this is an opportunity for me to change things. And I went for it. And when I wasn't happy, I didn't rerun with the same party. I ran against them because I wasn't happy with the status quo after one year. And you know, whether it's the personal thing of the webmaster or being the realizing that we weren't doing enough, it's a combination of everything. And whatever the reason is, is it's ultimately you have the power to always revisit the the the, the things that you're not uh, satisfied with, and see them as every opportunity to redefine it, even if you don't know what you're doing. And that's why my story. I really want other Asian Americans or even allied or non-Asian Americans to hear is that if you have no idea what you're doing, but you're doing something, that's okay. Because none of us knew what we were doing, as you said, Jerry, at the time, until we look back and like, oh, thank goodness, at least I did something. The poison cup. Thank goodness I just decided to drink it rather than just stare at it forever in stasis. I, I, you know, again, I, it's in hindsight, it, it makes sense. And I think Sometimes we are, or I felt at least, there are things that you want to do, whether in leadership positions or things that are a little bit more publicly visible. And in that same quote by Helen and, and what you know your author friend said, like we sometimes talk ourselves into minimizing our voice or taking a back seat because we've been told by our family, our friends, or you know, at some point we internalize it that we're being rude, yeah. right? That we are that self-advocacy equals being boastful and disrespectful and i'm sick and tired of that shit because that one sort of ideal has kept so many people silent on things that they should really be celebrated for because we have been taught collectively that talking about ourselves is bad and that you should just keep your head down and do good work and that you will be celebrated and and i think from our parents' perspective, as we mentioned a few times in this conversation, that was super well-intentioned, and that probably was true in the world that they grew up in, in a more collectivist society where people took care of each other, and it was less about me, 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 but yet we are now being judged in a completely new paradigm in academia or in higher, you know, in, in corporate America, where self-advocacy is a trait that is not only highly valued, but is almost required for advancement, and so there's this conflict and it's on us, you, me, and other folks who stay loud to talk our friends into being louder than they are currently. And even when that feels uncomfortable, like you said, get even louder than that so that we can finally start to self-advocate individually, but also as a community. Because when many, many members of our community don't brag or talk, that also becomes a community challenge for us to not celebrate the things that we have done for ourselves and with ourselves. And, and so I, I think we're going through a really 
you know, special time in, in our community. And I know that the last couple of years with the actual health scares of COVID and the consequences and the violence and all these things that are happening, it is a truly pivotal time in our community's history in America that I think we'll look back as the time that we decided to finally get FN loud. Right. And, and I think that's the way, you know, manifested by you writing a book, right? You doing your TV interviews, you standing on stages and and all of our friends who are starting shows and platforms and, you know, aided by the fact that it is the best time to be a creator, to share your own voice. We are becoming more and more unignorable. And, and that is a really, really great thing that I want to teach my kids and all of our kids to stay loud and that it's okay to brag because what feels like bragging to us it's just somebody stating the facts that you won this award or that you're, you know, that you wrote this book. And then, so, you know, with that in mind, take us through the last, it's almost coming up three years. I used to say two, and now we're creeping up on the three year mark of what we, you know, the pandemic, broadly speaking, you had a front row seat, unfortunately, from having to react to it at, in one of the earlier epicenters in New York City, especially in the emergency room. Um, take us through sort of how you saw that. And, and was there a point where, you felt because you ended up doing it and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure when it turned, but you wanting to use your voice, particularly on social media to speak out about your perspectives, the things that you were seeing and to educate the many people that you had in your community about all that was going on. It is likened to the defiance that my surviving every day was an act of defiance against this virus. That was the way that kept me going. And I was able to understand that because of my growing up Asian American. The fact that we exist and live to this day, and you, whoever is listening, if you're a person of color that you are living right now, the fact that you're existing right now is an act of defiance. You might as well just accept that your very existence is rude to the status quo. Your presence as the student leader, as a person of color, whether you and I, in that room where it's predominantly non people not student color, your your presence in that room is rude, is an act of defiance. And when it came to COVID, a, such an unknown enemy who doesn't care about you, who's indiscriminate and in who it infects and kills, the fact that you go to work every day is the the because I had lost the the way I was going to refill my cup through traveling. Like we can't travel anymore during a, a pandemic, especially in the beginning. Can't travel during a lockdown. I, I gave up on the thing. The only thing that I knew, the biggest thing I knew that was going to recharge me and refill my cup to get me to go into work all the time. And it, it's like going to a boxing ring and for this big match that you prepared all your life for. And they're telling you, you got to tie your hands behind your back and you not drink any water. And we're not going to tell you how long it's going to be because we didn't know when it was going to end. So I was like, at that, and then you go in and people are dying around you. Your colleagues are dying. You don't have enough PPE. I just felt like every day that I, or every minute that I was breathing was an act of defiance. And I was like, wait, where did that come from? And I realized growing up Asian American. And I, I think that you had mentioned our parents trying to keep us safe. You know, don't speak out. Don't put you out there, uh, put your head out there because they were trying to protect us. They loved us. That was their love language. And way it may have worked in their generation, like this generation is far different. We need to evolve and to, put, to go against their wishes feels like a betrayal an act of defiance. It feels rude. But it was the only thing that I think kept me going, kept me alive, was to keep going back and work. Because at the time, I was 
I mean, I still am a per diem doctor. I didn't have to go in at all. I was credentialed at all these hospitals and I could choose and pick which shifts I wanted. No one could, was telling me when to go in. I mean, that, that also leads me to not be guaranteed shifts, but at least I had the choice. And during a pandemic, when it came around, there were some moments where I was like, I don't want to bring this virus home and hurt my loved ones and maybe kill my family. Maybe I should sit it out, keep my head down, just go, get, get by until the, the worst is over, and then maybe go back in and pick up the pieces. But I couldn't help but wanting to go back in over and over and over again, which is ironic because so many doctors were getting sick. I was getting calls from all these different hospitals because I was credentialed at all these hospitals. Your ID works. <laughs> Please come in, like we need you. And I was, I had to pick and choose which one to go in. And I was working at, you know, all these. Every day I was in a different place, which actually gave me a bigger perspective of what was going on in the city. For most full time doctors, had they chosen, sorry, for full time doctors, because they have chosen to work on only one hospital system, they don't know what's going on elsewhere. So they think that all the badness is specific to them. And since you can't blame a virus, they don't care. You tend to start blaming yourself. And what does that sound like? Growing up different, we tend to have a hard time blaming other people when we feel so overwhelmed. We tend to blame ourselves, our identity, for the, why, the things we are the way they are. It's a very normal uh, disposition to be, to be feeling, and that's what we're comfortable with. But that doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. And sometimes the right thing to do is do what's uncomfortable. And then when it came to speaking out about COVID, they wanted the perspective of what was going on in the big city at large. And because I was per diem, I wasn't tied to a hospital media contract. I could say whatever I wanted. And when they asked me to identify a hospital, I was like, I don't remember what I ate for breakfast this morning. I don't know. It's all the same. What does it matter? And they actually loved that. And it kind of was like, kind of like how I got into medical school. Why do you want to be a doctor? I don't know. I lost the bet. We love that. And I'm like, is this really happening? But I think being genuine, being authentic, and being honest in the moment may come across to you as being rude to who you were growing up as and what your parents expected you to be or what they expect an Asian American to be. But if anything but like being authentic only gets you to, even as uncomfortable as it feels, to a place that you need to be. That is incredible. I, you know, I, one, most folks don't know, ER doctors by and large, like you said, are sort of free agents in the space. And that has its pluses and its minuses, but at least for you in this moment, the fact that you didn't have an HR manager or, you know, I don't know, a a chief of whatever, like pinging you and saying, Hey, that TV interview, like, don't say that anymore. Um, similar to me, like the moment I decided to talk about the things that I wanted in the tone that I wanted without fear of retribution from my employer, because it didn't serve their need of protecting their logo or me being a risk from a PR or, you know, whatever perspective is when I found my voice in helping me build this platform and my speaking business as well. And I I think we discount that, right? I think we, again, this is the opposite of stability that our parents have ingrained into our heads in our youth to say, you have to make certain sacrifices for the good of stability. And because of their sacrifices, we now have this giant basket of privilege that we can say whatever we want to say and to share the stories that we believe need to be shared for that. Uh, before I forget, I need to ask you two questions. Tell me about the bet that landed you in Egypt, and tell me about the bet that landed you in medical school. So I, at the age of 23, hated traveling, I, or the thought of traveling. I had all this debt. My dad died. Uh, he was our only breadwinner. My mom had been diagnosed with Parkinson's, so she was living, living on disability. She ended up living with her parents. 
right after my dad died. So like that night he died, I went home alone, slept alone and continued to do so up until like, you know, near the end of medical school. And I just, you know, struggled with, you know, navigating this life alone. The thought of traveling was just totally not on my radar because I thought like, what's the point of spending all this money to visit places you're not going to live in anyway? I also, I'm from New York City, this entitlement of this bratty New Yorker. <laughs> and I was embracing. The world comes to me. If I want to travel, I'll just go to this neighborhood. I'll take the subway. I don't need to get on a plane and spend all this money that I don't have. And I was bartending at the age of 23 at this uh, culture show after party in Midtown West. And there was this girl that wouldn't leave the bar. She liked my drinks or liked my company. And one thing led to another where she had told me about a trip she was going to Egypt, which I was like, oh, I have two more friends going to Egypt. What a small world. They ended up connecting the next day. Uh, they were all leaving, you know, within a few hours, or, I mean, with, you know, 48 hours. And they were kind of encouraged me to come with them to Egypt. And I was like, no, I don't like traveling. You know, I'm like, I'm like Harry Potter. Everyone goes away in spring break or winter break and I stay on campus. Like that's what I actually did. I never left the country to travel my own. And they kept pushing me. And I was like, what was the coolest thing to get out of this bet without looking like an idiot? And I had checked because, you know, I liked this girl enough to check the prices. It was like $2,000. So I was like, ah, oh, that's a good one. I don't have the time. I don't have the money. And it's $2,000. That's terrible. That's a, what a terrible deal. Fine. And in order to get them off their back, I told them, you know, it was kind of like a joke. I was like, I'll go with tickets under $800. Okay. And then we, you know, you know, go out, we you know, celebrate. I was like, have a fun time in Egypt. I'm glad everyone met. Everyone's getting along. This is so fun. Have fun for me. And, you know, they, you know, kept checking and kept checking just to tease me and to, you know, probably try to get me to, you know, to finally go. But then last call, four o'clock in the morning, we leave and I checked one more time and it literally had dropped from 2000 to $650. What? $650. Like, it, it, I guess is a last minute deal. Or what, whatever it was, it was like a flight hack. I mean, we know about it all the time. Scott's Cheap Deals or Skyscanner. Yeah, yeah, Skip yeah. Lab. We see it all the time. And it just happened to be for Cairo round trip. And I was like, shoot. And, you know, 4 o'clock in the morning after a bar, you, you kind of influenced a little bit. But, you know, that's a great <laughs> deal. I mean, that's how un-Asian American is to not capitalize or <laughs> un-American to capitalize on such a good deal. And I rather... And I realized I'd rather be $650 poor and stay a, a man of my word rather than start a habit of flaking on the promises I make to myself and my loved ones and other people. And I bought it on the spot and I took the days off of work and then 36 hours later found out I was in Cairo with these people, I, you know, with this girl I just met and uh, ended up you know, hating it. I spent two days with them, but they had to leave early. So I ended up spending three weeks alone without expecting to. So I didn't plan anything, didn't prepare anything, didn't bring anything, because I thought they were going to take care of everything. One of my friends was Egyptian, so I thought I was going to stay with her and have her show me around. Another, The other friend was more well-traveled, so he was going to take me around as well. And uh, the girl, she was with her family, so obviously, you know, who loved me, by the way. She was with her parents, but ended up only, they had to leave early for, because of this winter storm. And the first week, I was like, I hate this so much. Traveling is as bad as I thought. Why do people love this thing? Because every minute, I was like, I'm going to die, 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 I'm going to die. The second week, I was like, huh, I'm getting the hang of this. And then the third week, I was like, oh, I get it. This is why people love this so much. And what I had realized looking back when writing about it 
and the, and it's mentioned in the book, was that traveling isn't to change you as a person. It's to take you out of your element back home into a different environment where it's like kind of walking to like a fun house of mirrors. And they all are different mirrors like shining a different reflection on you. And the reason why I hated it the first week was because I was the, it was the first time I was truly alone where I didn't speak the language, I didn't know anyone, nobody knew me. I couldn't even understand the billboards or the advertisements on TV. So the only person I could commune with was myself. And if I was hating that first week of being by myself, it wasn't because of Egypt or the country. We tend to you know, think it's external. But because traveling is like a fun house of mirrors, I was hating the reflection I was seeing of myself being in a foreign place. I couldn't stand being alone and eating with, you know, to, you know, and thinking that I was going to die in every minute. I was, you know, being ashamed. And it wasn't until three weeks into the trip when I came back and I was like, huh, you survived and you have no one to blame for that or to be grateful for other than yourself and the kindness of strangers. So I had redeveloped the faith in humanity and a redeveloped faith in myself. And that's when I realized why travel is so important. And that's when I also realized I don't know jack shit. There's this kid that came into this trip being dragged, kicking and screaming, thinking that he hated traveling. And then three weeks later, after that, all that, coming back and saying, oh, I get why I love traveling. So how was I supposed to know that medical school was also wasn't right for me or was right for me? All right, before we get to the second bet, too many questions. Uh, is that girl still in your life now? Her sister is still friends with me. Okay. Um, <laughs> to, and, and the thing that – it was a comment about um, New York City people, and LA people are similar too. We happen to think that where we live is the greatest place on earth, and we have this like reluctance to leave, right? And because it's like well, where else is better? And I think particularly, you know, I have a lot of friends who uh, were raised in Southern California and went to one of the local schools. And and similarly, if you're a New York City kid and you end up going to Columbia, NYU, Parsons, or, you know, any of the great schools, you sort of commit to staying there forever. And I, I love the fact that, you know, through this, you challenge yourself to not maybe move permanently because your occupation is in the city, but it, it has ended up becoming this wild movement let's call it that has not only helped you see the world but also has encouraged and made it safer right because i think one of the themes of your decision making process is fear of being alone fear mm -hmm. of traveling alone fear of exploring new things that we have no idea about and yet when there is a entity or a trustworthy person or a group of people that you think you can have a decent time with that lowers the barrier of fear for people who want to explore outside of that. And, and I think another theme of your life, Calvin, is that when you do things that are against the grain and against the status quo of what is expected of us, the biggest thing that holds us back, I think, is the fear of people's reactions, right? And so when we say we want to study something that is not the norm, when we say we want to be a bartender and not go to med school, it's, it's more about what is mom going to say? Or what are my friends going to think? And and we can quell that fear or almost eliminate it if we can show other people that one, somebody else has done it, and that's the way that you and I live our lives. But two, also inviting those people in to say, hey, why don't we go with, right? Come with me instead of me just simply inspiring you to do the same. And, and, and that's what Monsoon Diaries has become for you, not the book, but your movement and your business. That I think is 
so incredible that you have given people permission to explore the world. Yes, tactically speaking, but themselves and their identities and then how we see that, um, because it, it is my personal belief that Americans, broadly speaking, and those of us who live in big cities, New York being the biggest culprit, because we think so highly of where we're from, that we are reluctant to view ourselves and the place that we live in and the place that we call home from a truly objective lens of how the rest of the world sees us. And you oh, can yeah. only get that perspective by traveling. And we get a little bit more of that perspective being immigrant kids and being outsiders in our own hometowns at times. But you really see how other people operate and think how unimportant New York City actually is in the global scheme of things when you go see the world. And uh, that, that I think, you know, is, is so special and unique. And um, uh, we'll pause on the medical bet story for a little bit. But tell me how that then sparked uh, 10 years later, 12 years later, you having visited almost 200 countries and, and places that many people don't go to, like North Korea, and, and not just going by yourself, but taking others along for the journey. I, I know people are going to at some point, but as you're listening to us, go over to Instagram and follow at Monsoon Diaries. Some of the behind the scenes videos, I know you went to uh, the Middle East a few weeks ago, or a few months ago, just living vicariously through you, man, uh, as a father of two who can't travel so freely. It's fun, and then it is inspiring, and it it got my travel itch going a little bit to say, hey, I am, am I depriving myself and my kids of these global experiences that help them learn so much? But yeah, tell me about the genesis of Monsoon Diaries, the the, the travel experience. First of all, feel free to bring yourself and your kids along. We can we can handle it. We can do it. <laughs> uh, parents have come. Mothers have. I, I would somehow get mothers and their daughters to come on my trips. Uh, not yet a father-son combo huh. yet, but you know, I would like you to defy that. Uh, but it. yeah, let's do it. And I think that's how it's, that's the answer. Like I, it's an open invitation. I'm not trying to get people to travel with me or force people to travel with me. Sometimes I, I could see you like wanting that little push. And sometimes I kind of give you that nudge, but I don't want to, you know, try to, you know, make someone who's not ready try to go. Because at the end of the day, None of us are truly ready, but if you just don't want the help or want to try to travel, then you'll, you know, you'll get there when you get there. I just want to do things as it is how I travel in the beginning. I'm going to go to this place because I want to, or something happens like Egypt where I can't help but go to it. And that's, I think, most of the reasons why I go to I choose these destinations. A lot of people ask how it happens. I was like, serendipity. That's something where I get invited somewhere or it just makes sense or something compels me and I announce it that I'm going here just like anyone would can't wait to go to this country and unlike tr other travel bloggers that I knew of at the time who didn't want the responsibility who was I to know that it wouldn't be more fun with other people I had loved traveling solo I was doing that a lot for one or two years but when more people ask to come along and they're like, I can't believe you're doing this as a medical student. How are you doing this? Are you a fraud? Are you like making it up? I was like, just come along and we'll figure it out together. And without a plan. So I give people the space to create their own adventures. I just plan the basics, the boring parts. You just have to show up. People would have this experience. It would be very intense because it's a, it's a, a lot in a short amount of time. That's what we call monsooning covering a large surface area in a short amount of time, then you go back and like, I don't know if I can handle that. 
but then you realize that everything back home just looks different. The needle has shifted. And what I've realized is that people have been coming back more often than they would have told me originally that what they were going to originally plan to travel. Oh, I'm just going to do this once or after the trip. It's like, that was enough. And then see themselves come back on a trip over and over and over, bring their friends and their friends bring their friends. And that's essentially going back to what we discussed before with, you don't know anything at the time. Right. You think that you're just going to be one trip and you plan it on off. You want to make God laugh, tell them your plan. And it, the, the fun part of life is to actually be surprised to see yourself living this life of adventure when you didn't set forth to do so in the beginning. It's a kind of a roller coaster. You don't need to know how many tips and turns there are in the future. Uh, just enjoy it in the moment. That, the, the, I agree with you. And, and I hope that we are, through this conversation and, and through your work, making people more comfortable taking that risk that because we no longer, for the majority of us, and, and I don't mean to offend if you're still in, in a place in life where you feel like survival is the most important thing, but many of us who no longer have to worry about survival and, and can take risk and do spontaneous things still have the old mindset, whether you are descendants of immigrants or refugees or some of the trauma that's been passed down to continue to think that we don't have some of these privileges or luxuries that we can participate in and 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 don't think about how taking that risk or spending that money or investing in the experience can help us see life in a different way. And, and that's where I think many uh, of us, um, especially in this transitionary generation time, is really, really uh, a unique opportunity to share through what we're doing, right? Whether it is yeah. travel or, you know, as it in my case, like quitting my corporate job and doing the storytelling for, you know, thing for a living and getting to do really, you know, ridiculous, unimaginable things. We're, we're letting people know that because of the sacrifices of our parents and ancestors that we get to do this stuff now and that the waves that will be created from people who see what we do and then take it to their own next levels is what is really going to define what it means to be Asian American in this country going forward. That, that I think is really, really cool. Um, yeah, we want to evolve, not plateau. Right. And evolving right. requires change. And I think as Asian Americans, we feel that you know traveling is a, such a privilege. We're wasting money. It's, it's an expenditure. But I try to see it more as an investment. I wouldn't have gotten to where I was today if it weren't for traveling. Even when I start, when I started, I was two hundred thousand dollars in student loan debt. I didn't have a father. I was bartending for my jobs to get by, and obviously, traveling was not on my radar. I did it for a completely different reason, for love and a story. But ultimately, it's just like the webmaster. It doesn't matter how you get in or what the 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 the, the way you get into that door, but how you reclaim that narrative and make it your own, despite however you started. And, to, you know, that it was felt feeling like I could only survive in medical school if it weren't for travel. And I had to do many different things to be able to afford it, but also look for cheap fares like the $650 round, flight, round trip flight that I realized it was like the investment I needed uh, to survive and then thrive. Agreed. Um, let's talk about the book as we, as we wrap the interview. Um, where was writing a book on your list of things that you thought you could be doing? as a kid growing up in New York City? Oh, it's just like the, the Egypt story and <laughs> going to med school. Like I had already been writing for the last 17 years since my father died. 
And I was approached by a literary agent or two literary agents to just collate everything I've written. And they asked, how do you feel about publishing this into a book? Hmm. And at the time, I had other published friends who uh, were encouraging me to do so as well. But they were like, it, you know, you have to go through all these hoops and loops. And I was completely overwhelmed and intimidated by that thought. And I also didn't feel like I deserved to or, it, or that, you know, that I deserved to have a book written because I wasn't, it was a, a whole world that I was not familiar with. So then when I was approached by the, the agents to do so, I was like, must be a sign, kind of like what happened with Egypt. And I would just go with the flow and see where it leads me. And two years later, they somehow got a, a publishing deal with Harper Collins, and it's coming out in less than two weeks from the time of this time of recording, or now, if you're listening to this. <laughs> and I just can't help but be shocked that it came out to be the way it was. And I, I'm very grateful. Like they, they, it was a lot of hard work, and I did put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears in trying to reform 17 years of writing into, you know, this 224 page book. I had to cut a lot of things out, uh, kill my darlings, as they say, for those of you who write. Uh, but I'm also very grateful for the process of just making a habit of going with the flow. And then once you do so, you put hundred percent into it, this active acceptance, not a passive resignation. You actively accept all that the opportunities you give with, and you keep your head up. So you see all the other opportunities afforded to you, and then you make the most out of it when they come to you, rather than trying to look at places where you're not supposed to be looking. As I said in the beginning of this podcast, this book is about resilience and how it's not something external outside of you. It's not a skill to be learned that's that's that has to be acquired outside of you. It's something that you already have. And the work is to see within and say, I have what it takes to maybe publish a book. And I'm just grateful to have other people who believe in me to get to this point. But that's also funny. Why have I lived my entire life with people believing in me more than I believed myself? With... My, parent, my parents thinking I could be a doctor when I said I didn't want to, with the people who see, saw me as a student government officer uh, when I didn't, even if it was a webmaster, they saw they, they could have picked any other Asian American, they picked me. Uh, Egypt, some uh, these friends who saw I can travel when I didn't want to travel. Medical school, this, the, the medical admissions office who said, you know, you're so interesting when I wasn't even sure. And now with this book. And I, that's what I think is like you have more what it, than we, you realize as an Asian American, those of you who are listening, than you're giving yourself credit for. And what you need to do is to surround yourself with the people that see that in you and coax you into this, this river that you need to get on and go with that flow so that you can see all the mountains and fields and other things rather than staying put like a rock on a river thinking that it's, something's going to happen. I, I think it's wonderful, man. I, you know, it's weird. I always felt, and maybe other people feel the same, that we were taught to live in a permission-based life, meaning that other people had to give you permission to share. Other people had to give you a platform to share your story. And, and that's just the way that you know a lot of the world works, right? You apply to school and they accept you. You apply to a job and they take you, right? Um, and I think that while good, sometimes we forget that we can give ourselves permission to share and that we and only we can dictate what we share and with whom and in what format. And what I think is really the, the coolest part of your, your, your storytelling journey, Calvin, is there comes a point when I think for many of us who create content on our own channels that we create ourselves, there is, at least for me, like, you know, this is still something that I created and 
I wonder if other people believe in me as much as I think my content matters. And, and for me, and, and we can talk about the digitization of content all we want, but a physical book that is bought by a traditional publisher that you can go to a Barnes and Nobles today or any bookstore today and pick up with somebody whose face and name sounds like yours is a big fucking deal, right? Yeah. Because that is respect, that is validation that your story matters so much so that an extremely not so diverse industry in, you know, in publishing believes in the viability because it's a business at the end of the day. They believe that enough people will be interested and pony up the money for the book so that it is a supportable story. And, and we can, and while we will do what we can to make sure that these industries and these platforms become more diverse so that the next Calvin son can write a book even earlier in his life, the fact that it's happening now and the fact that we are being supported and, and we are being invested in by these companies and these platforms so that our stories can permeate into far beyond just our Asian American audience. I think that is so damn cool. And I mean, congratulations to you and, and kudos to the people behind the scenes, uh, understanding how complex this process is. Um, in, it's in kind of like to the government, proposal. right? It's, it takes a whole village. Walking to like that room said, and you're like, am I the only person you're looking over your shoulders? And it's like, no one's looking over your shoulder. And you're just like, I'm in this room now. You know? That's it. And, and, you know, so I, and again, it's, it's one of these weird things that are really from a point of validation and, and credibility that I hope that more of the world, more of the community, particularly the non-Asian American community that needs to hear our stories, will pick up your book and to see the world from our perspective just a little bit with the hopes that it helps our kids and even ourselves live in this country, in this world, in a more safer and more thriving uh, and more comfortable way that I think we somehow lost over the last few years. Mm -hmm. um, one, one last bit, one last question before we close in the same way that we do all of our shows. I know we've shared so much and, and really I encourage people to read your blogs, to go get that book today, to follow you on social media and, and to really see what can come of a life that is uh, against the grain and, and challenges the status quo of what even your stereotypical Asian American doctor can live in this country but share with us any last thoughts or inspiration or motivational things that you want to share uh, with our audience in the form of a letter that is the name of this podcast. And so Dr. Calvin Sun, uh, help us close out the show and finish the letter. Dear Asian Americans. Thank you, Jerry, for having me. And this has been a very thoughtful and thought provoking discussion, exploring things in a way that and lenses in a way that is very refreshing because, you know, to have a particularly focus, a particular focus on what it means to be an Asian American in describing the story and my narrative is something that I don't get to do with the traditional podcasts I have uh, that are more gener uh, general. And for the Asian Americans out there, I was writing the last 17 years not knowing it was going to lead anywhere. I did not expect it to turn into a book. I did not expect a travel blog to get people to come traveling with me. I didn't expect to even what we discussed being a student government, class president, vice president, both me and Jerry here to walk in a room and expect others to follow along and say, you know what, if they can do it, so can I. We did it because we focused in the present of what we wanted to change. And whatever that has happened in the past, and whatever the reasons that you are that came to being, and to whatever it is that you're struggling with, 
Know that every waking moment that you're listening to right now, if you have the energy and the spoons, is another opportunity to turn it all around, to recapitalize, reframe, and to redo or just evolve and see all those things that's happened that you have struggled with, not as something to ignore, repress, move on, be ashamed of, but rather embrace, sit with, endure to the point where it's kind of pushing itself away from you. But you realize that then once you are in control and you have the autonomy to embrace with all the feelings, whether they're beautiful th memories or uncomfortable ones, that they give you the, the energy and the, the actual ironic fuel to live the rest of your life with greater clarity, clarity, with greater purpose and a mission in order to, for you to become that person in the room one day, whether it's student government or an author or a travel blogger or whatever discipline that you want to do as an Asian American, that the people behind you will look up to you and say, I can do that too. You can be that person. Our parents sacrificed so much to get us to where we are. They worried about putting food at the table. They had no space or the privilege to talk about the issues that we talked about here on the podcast. They talked about how to survive. And they did all that to get us to where we are today. The best way we can honor that memory, whether here or have passed, is to take that energy and to keep that trajectory going for our future progeny, Asian Americans, the people that have yet to exist, to look up to us and build upon what our parents have built, rather than trying to recycle something that is unsustainable. We need to create an evolution moving forward, and you could be that person, even if you have no idea what you're doing right now. Because even today, both me and Jerry can say, we have no idea what we're doing. And that's actually the answer. That is, you don't need to look for an answer other than the answer is, you have no idea, and that's okay. Doing good enough is good enough. So just enjoy the moment and enjoy the roller coaster ride. You don't need to know what happens next. Trust the process. Trust the process. We're still making it up as we go. Um, Calvin, I just want to say thank you. You know, you you were a place of hope, of information, of community during the pandemic for me. And so, and, and for so many of our friends, knowing your story beyond that has uh, really inspired me. And I know many people listening to think about life in a different way and to really leave our mark in the ways that we were never taught. And, and all the while doing it in a very respectful and meaningful way with our parents and with our grandfathers, grandmothers, and our ancestors, making them proud along the way. And I cannot wait to hear about the success of your book. Please do go buy it today and buy an extra copy for a friend, a colleague. Um, I'm sure you'll be doing book events virtually and in person as, as we celebrate you. And, and um, I am so grateful that you are uh, on the show, that you got a, chair, a chance to share your story. At Monsoon Diaries, all together in those spaces across all the platforms is where you can find Calvin and his story. And uh, let us know what you thought about our story. Um, you know, write to us, comment on our, you know, uh, social stuff. But really, really grateful that we got to meet you today and for team behind the interview for making this happen, your your, your press team and everybody else who um super good at following up to make sure that we got this uh, on air today. So thanks, Calvin. Wishing you all the luck. Can't wait to hear more about your travels. And I will make it a priority to see if we can make this uh, father trip 
happen soon to wherever in the world you want to take us. So thanks again, man. So grateful to you and the community and everyone that has gotten us to where we are. So it's a privilege and let's keep this going. Let's not, this, let's not let this be a period. Let's make this a semicolon. I'm looking forward to future conversations. Awesome. Thank you. Big shout out to Dr. Calvin Sun for making time for this interview and to the team behind uh, Dr. Calvin Sun's books uh, for arranging the interview. You can learn more about him at monsoondiaries.com and just about everywhere on the internet at Monsoon Diaries. Uh, his book, again, titled for his brand, Monsoon Diaries, comes out today. Wherever you buy books, wherever you borrow books or listen to books, so please go get that. You can learn more about us and the show at theersinamericans.com or at theersinamericans on the Instagram. You can find me at jerrywan.com and learn about my speaking, my speaking mastermind that's coming up. You can find me on LinkedIn to search Jerry Wan. Pretty easy to find there. And Patrick, where can people find you? You can find me on Instagram at Patrick in the world. You can also find me on LinkedIn as well at backslash Patrick in the world and on my website, which is conveniently titled Patrick in the world dot me. Dot you. Dot me. <laughs> dot me. We got some exciting stuff planned here on the show as we are um, about to announce some in- some fun things that we're going to do here in the fourth quarter. And if you listen to the end of the other episode uh, with our friends from McKinsey, you know that I went to the vice president's house and uh, I think the interview is going to happen. I am not going to announce it until we know, but if you listen to this far into the episode, uh, know that the desire on both sides is to make it happen. We just have to figure out a time and an opportunity to make it happen. And so a uh, big thanks to everybody. Go get Dr. Calvin's book. Thank you for listening to us. If it is your first time listening to the show, please, please, please do us a favor and subscribe to the show, whether you're listening to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcast, and leave us a nice little review. Thanks again for tuning in to Dear Asian Americans. I am your host, Jerry, along with our producer, Patrick, wishing you health, happiness, and safety. See you next time.